I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 92. And I'm still sick. At least it's not the flu. Hey, you're rhymed. It works. But it's not. It's not the flu. Mm-mm. Just the never-ending story. <laughs> yes. Ugh. I'm sorry, y'all. Hopefully this is the last episode y'all have to hear with this voice. It's kind of sultry. Is it, though? No. Okay, I didn't think so. <laughs> Did not think so. I'm surprised all that wine you drank this weekend didn't kill it. Y'all, drunk Donna came out, but she was also sick. She was, and when she would laugh. <laughs> Whew. Y'all think I think I'm funny sober? Drunk Donna thinks she's a fucking riot. I mean, she's... Not wrong, because <laughs> she is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But Drunk Donna definitely thinks she's way funnier than she is. Mm-hmm. But it's still really funny. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think I have learned that I do like wine more than anything. Really? Yeah. 2020 is going to be the year that I get fisticated with my wine, <laughs> and I learn how to drink red. <laughs> Sweet red. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's going to be January, February, March. And then we'll, you know. Also this weekend, Santa stopped by. Oh, my gosh. Y'all, if you are not in the Facebook group, you missed Santa and Mrs. Claus stopping by because they had gifts. And he twerked. Have you ever seen a Santa twerk? You might not ever want to again, but he did it. This is why you need to be in the Facebook group. Because if you're if you were watching the live or you rewatch the live, you could comment for a chance to win a ten dollar leveled Patreon membership for the month of January, and because so, we had it, we had an anonymous donor, and so we gave away five Patreon memberships. So they'll get all the content in January plus all of the previous content from I don't know however long we've had Patreon. A while. Like a year and a half. Yeah, so it's a lot. They'll get to know us real good over there. Well. well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know who else is going to get to know us really well? Who? New Patreoners. So thank you so much, Aaron C. from Michigan. Jason B. from Missouri. Cresta D. from Georgia. Dominique L. from Indiana. Megan T. from Louisiana. And Teresa G. from North Carolina. And Teresa, your husband James, he signed you up, girl. And he wanted you to know that after eight long years, he still thinks that you are the most beautiful woman in the world. And you have a heart of gold that you never cease to amaze and inspire him. And he wants you to know that you are loved and appreciated beyond measure. Blah, 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 blah. Nice butt. <laughs> that ending is it's everything. Great. Yeah. It's everything. But like, it just sums up their relationship mm-hmm. so perfectly. Like, mm-hmm. it's so loving, but here's a little slap on the ass when you're in the kitchen yeah, doing something. You know? Exactly. It's the best. The best. Okay, picture it. Elizabeth, New Jersey, October 11th, 1966. It's 945 at night in Martin Munov, who's known as Mouse, and James Yankitis, known as Jimmy. They're two best friends walking home, and they're on the road that's running beside the elevated New Jersey turnpike. 
So let me paint you a picture. Please do, because I don't understand how the road is running alongside something that's elevated. Okay, look. <laughs> look here. I'm not Dr. Seuss. That made no sense. (laughs) Like a writer. (laughs) First of all, that's who you come up with. And two, still doesn't make any fucking sense. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Storyteller, maybe. So the turnpike was above them, and then there was a 30-foot slope running from the turnpike above them all the way down to the tall wire fence that was alongside the road that they were on. Like a like a concrete? Yeah. Sl- okay. Like what would be under an overpass? Oh, yeah, okay. that's what I'm picturing. And the slope was, like, really steep. Like, it wasn't, like, a level two incline on a treadmill, mm-hmm. which is really steep for me. I mean, you're not wrong. Mm, my shins are burning on a one. <laughs> okay, on a nun, okay? I was going to say, push uh, rock in my chair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hey, it counts on the Fitbit. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I will hit my daily steps in a minute up on my rocking chair. <laughs> Both boys are just lollygagging around and talking about the gossip that they had heard from their neighbors. And what it was about was that a neighborhood woman had been chased by a tall green man earlier that day in that same vicinity. So they were joking around a little bit, but this area is really only lit with the street lamps from the turnpike above them. So it's kind of dark and scary anyway, so they're a little on edge too. And probably after freaking themselves out and having a laughing fest like we do, they had to stop, catch their breath. Jimmy looked up and kind of froze because he noticed a figure standing by the brush on the opposite side of the fence where that slope was. The person wasn't looking at them. They were looking in a different direction at the house across the street. Well, right then, Jimmy nudged Mouse and whispered, who is that guy standing behind you? What? Well, Mouse turned around because he was facing Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And there he saw it, this figure just standing there. Who was it? Well, then the figure turned on his heels and looked right at them. And he was grinning this really big, creepy smile. Well, they didn't waste any time. They booked it out of there because mama didn't raise no fool. They made it home, all safe and sound. A few days later... Two men named John Keel and Chuck McCann, they came and interviewed the two boys separately at the same time, and they both gave the same description, everything. And if you're listening and you're like, John Keel, hmm, well, he is a famous paranormal investigator and author who introduced us all to the Mothman, who's a cryptid that I'm going to be covering soon, because it needs like a whole episode It's going to be a long episode. Well, they were in the area due to something else I'll get into in just a minute. So, you know, foreshadowing the foreskin. Mm -hmm. The description that the boys gave them was that the figure was over six feet tall, dressed in a sparkling green coverall costume with a wide black belt around its waist. 
and they said sparkling, but what it really is is like a reflective material, kind of like a like a safety vest. Almost. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They said that he had little round eyes and they were wide set. They couldn't remember if he had any hair, ears, or a nose because all they could focus on was his huge, wide grin. I feel like I would notice the lack of nose before I would know, like, oh, this is what his nose looked like. Well, if it's dark and all you see is, like, this huge, like, white grin kind of thing, you know what I mean? See, and I wasn't picturing white grin. This is what I was picturing. Do you remember on Aladdin when Jafar pretends to be the old man with the cane so that <laughs> yes. Aladdin goes to think, yeah. and he does that smile in his teeth? Yeah. That's what I picture, and it grosses me out because mm-hmm. you know how I am about teeth. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. so scared I'm going to lose my teeth one day. Yes. So they weren't like that? Mm-mm. Well, John Keel put this in his 1970 book called Strange Creatures from Time and Space. This was the first recorded encounter with the humanoid figure Known as the Grinning Man. Clever name. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, the news spread like wildfire. And it wasn't long before the whole neighborhood knew about it. And so they told people and so on. Well, then some of those people were like, hey, you know, there was a UFO sighting that happened that same night. But it was 40 miles away in the DuPont factory outside of Pompton Lakes. And this is why John Keel... And Chuck, that's why they were in this area. Oh, for the UFO thing. Mm-hmm. The initial eyewitnesses for this UFO sighting were a police officer and his wife. And they said that they saw this object that was, quote, blazing white light that was as big as a car. And it nearly hit a 600-foot tall television tower. But then it just vanished over the hills. And that was it. However, on the other side of the hills were two other policemen, and they saw it too. Hmm. On MysteriousUniverse.org, Sergeant Thompson was quoted saying that the light was brilliantly white. It lit up the whole area for about 300 yards. In fact, it blinded me when I got out of the patrol car to look at it, and I couldn't see for about 20 minutes afterwards. Hmm. Sounds almost like a... Like an eclipse, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Less than a month after the boys' encounter and that UFO sighting, on November 2nd, 1966, there was this worker, Woodrow Derenberger. He was driving home on Interstate 77 after a long day at work, and suddenly this weird, or your favorite word, bizarre, (laughs) vehicle just happened to be in front of him, like Tokyo Drift style, like plop right there. This vehicle was totally out of this world. Eh. Oh, my God. (laughs) Did you write that shit down? No. It came to me on my noggin right now. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He described it as an old-fashioned kerosene lamp chimney. So, it's like those hurricane lamps, the kerosene lamps, the Mm -hmm. clear cylinder with the bulge in the middle. With the liquid in the bottom? Yeah. Yeah. But it's like that cylinder is what he's talking about. Kind of like a vase, but not really. Yeah. I mean, basically, it's my body. Like, big, but then in the middle, whoop, bulge, and then (laughs) big up top, too. (laughs) You said, whoop. (laughs) 
Well, of course, Woodrow comes to a halt because he's like, skirt. Well, when he does, he sees the hatch slide open and this very tall, muscular figure come out. I'm coming out. Do you remember when the internet like first came and like you would get those emails and it was the uh the alien doing that I will survive. Yes. That's what I pictured. <laughs> yes. When the internet first came out. I know. He said he had small, wide set eyes, but what he really could notice was this wide, creepy grin, and he could see it just kind of sparkling in his headlights. Hmm. The one thing that was different was that he was in a blue reflective coverall thing instead of green, but it was still reflective. So this really muscular, really tall figure comes up and he's just looking at Woodrow with that wide, just creepy fucking grin on his face. And then Woodrow hears a voice that's not his own. And this is when the grinning man started to telepathically speak to him. And so he asked him some odd questions like, what are those lights over there on the horizon? And Woodrow's like, that neighboring town of blah? And he's like, are there people there? He's like, nah, that's really businesses, factories, that kind of thing. So questions like that go on for a little bit. And then he says, my name is Indrid Cold, and I will be visiting you again. Indrid? Yes. And he just kind of turns on his heels and walks back to that car vehicle thing. And then it travels up and away. And if I haven't lost Carrie yet, which I'm pretty sure she was never on board, this is where she's going to make her stand and not believe anything. But Woodrow revealed later that Injured Cold did come back and did talk to him a lot. And he said that he was an alien from the planet Lanulos. Mm-hmm. And it's nestled in the galaxy of Genomedes, maybe? Question mark, question mark. Okay. He also claimed that Cold took him back to his home planet where he saw people walking around in colorful shorts. And he said all of the signs were obviously in a different language that were kind of like squiggly writing. And at one time, Cold brought two men or grinning men back with him. Their names were Demo Hassan and Carl Ardo. Well, Woodrow's wife met them and she was like, no, honey, I think they're evil. I mean, what do you even do if your husband comes home and he's like, hey, babe, I got these two guys I want you to meet. Oh, by the way, they're aliens. Oh, I'd be like, ooh, I have some probing questions I need to ask them. Oh, my God. I mean, uh, truly, what do you even do? Okay. Well, I mean, like, I mean, truly. Yeah. Well, after this whole meeting and everything, she left Woodrow and he basically became consumed with injured cold and helping him. He went on to write a book about it, all of the things. And that's the last 
I know of Woodrow. So his wife was just like, this is dumb. Bye. Yeah, she was like, look, probably like you're paying way too much attention to to your new buddies. Mm -hmm. And like, no. And she thought they were evil and shit. So. So she bought they were aliens. Yeah. And like, she still like after she divorced him, she was like, no, no, no. I met them and this is real. In that same time period, there was another encounter in Point Pleasant, and that happened with the Lily family. The Lily family all of a sudden had this poltergeist-like activity that just, again, appeared out of nowhere. Things would be thrown, you know, things were misplaced, all of, we know, all of the common shit that goes on. They also had some lights that would appear above their home at night. The mom of the, sorry, the mom of the family, she said that they seen all kind of strange things. Blue lights, green ones, red ones, things that change color. And some would be so low that they could see inside and it was like a diamond shaped window. And none of them made any noise at all. And that's what's like super strange. As with most poltergeist activity, it centered around one of their kids, and it was their daughter, Linda. She said that she woke up one night, and she saw this big figure just leering down at her while she was in bed. Can you imagine waking up and something standing over you while you sleep? No. No. She said he was very broad, very big, And she couldn't see his face very well, but she could tell he was grinning at her. No. Mm -mm. He then walked around the bed and stood right over her. So she's a kid. She screamed and pulled her sheets over her head and then slowly, you know, inch by inch lowered them and he was gone. So she ran to her mom's room, screaming her head off. There's a man in my room. There's a man in my room. They could not find any trace of anyone being in her room, but she didn't sleep in her room for months after this. And how we know this is that she recounted this story to John Keel because he was in the area covering the Mothman whole thing that's going on. It was like a whole thing. Girl, just get ready. Get ready for that episode. But if you recall, same kind of stuff was going on with the boys with the UFO that was sighted 40 miles away, same night. Well, this had lights right above their house. So it seems to be a correlation with the Grinning Man and UFOs or any kind of supernatural activity. Since that night, they never saw the Grinning Man again at the Lily house. And they never had poltergeist activity again either. Also, in 1966, same year, and 1967, in Provincetown, Massachusetts, there were several encounters that people would call in and report with a beady-eyed, wide-grin prowler at night. So sometimes they would see this figure just standing outside, and all they could really make out was he had an abnormally wide, creepy grin. Wow. Wow. Sometimes he was inside their room, just like he was with Linda. All of the things. But, I mean, once they were able to react, he was no longer there. 
since 1978, there haven't been a lot of sightings. They've been very sporadic. On April 23rd, 2009, H.R. Zapruder, that's a blogger, he said that he had a brief encounter with someone he thinks is a green man when he was driving near Roswell, New Mexico. He said that he drove past a man standing kind of in the brush on the side, and he thought he was a hitchhiker, so kind of just like went past, and he really didn't think anything about him, but when he passed, he kind of saw like green, like glistening, reflecting, and so he looked into the rearview mirror, and so he saw the man from behind, and he was bald, over six feet tall, and had a green jacket that was kind of sparkly, again, reflective. But the rest, he couldn't see because it was in the brush. Well, then when he arrived in town, the people around were like, dude, you just missed a UFO. So again, the grinning man and a UFO really close by, Mm -hmm. you know, same time frame. And of course, I checked Reddit They had a thread with the boys' story, Mouse and Jimmy, that I told y'all earlier. And there was this comment on there, and it's by Roscoe Cello. And this person said, yeah, I see this guy too, except he has static for eyes. What? Like TV snow. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so this person goes on to say that they've had reoccurring visits since they were a kid where he would show up. The grinning man would tell them, like, you're asleep, but I'm real. And if you tell anyone about me, I'm going to be very angry. What? Why all of a sudden is this fake grinning man mean? (laughs) Be careful what you call fake, Carrie. I don't think he was mean. I think. Okay, but all the other people could tell all the people and do interviews. But this one dude, it's like, don't you fucking tell about me. Why? It. mm Mm-hmm. Mm. Like, I mean, different people, you have, you want more privacy than I do. And so we'll get into it later, but it, so if Woodrow's right and there's a whole planet of these grinning men, and if they all come down in different times, if me and you came down at a different time, you would be the, this one. You would be this sure one. Sure as shit would. Yes, you would. I'd be injured cold. Mm-hmm. One can't drive. Two, what what's that over yonder? Mm-hmm. You know? Three, very chatty. Very chatty. Can't even fucking move my mouth and I'm still fucking talking, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the visitations, they stopped for a while until this person was in their late 20s. And then the grinning man came back. And it just wanted to tell them that he wasn't gone. He's been watching. What? Yeah. And he said that he would be back when it was time. For what? Well, I don't know. And this person said encounters were always bizarre because they'd be having a normal dream. And then, like, off in the distance, they would see this grinning man walking up in their dream. And then it would kind of, like, tear it apart, like, Freddy Krueger style. Hmm. Which, terrifying. Yep. That's terrifying. And you know how I fucking feel. Mm Mm-hmm. Do not fuck with my sleep. (laughs) But then this person started seeing the grinning man 
in their bedroom. Mm. And they felt like they were not dreaming. Sometimes they would just be listening to music and they would see the grinning man just in the corner staring with Mm -mm. those static TV snow eyes. Mm Mm-mm. And they ended it by saying, I'm sure it's all just some weird sleep paralysis shit, but it freaks me out just typing. Which kind of goes hand in hand with Linda, Lily, about like sleep paralysis, how she felt and everything. Mm -hmm. So the Grinning Man has been lumped in to like shadow people. Not lumped in, but lumped together with shadow people, specifically the Hat Man, Black Eyed Children, Men in Black... Oh, Lord. So, what we know is he's a humanoid figure, super fucking tall. He could give Slender Man a run for his money. He's really muscular, wide-set eyes, and, of course, that huge, scary grin. Usually, people say, like, he's an alien-human hybrid. And, like I said, there may be more than one. It might be a whole network. And there's multiple theories on what his purpose is. But a lot of people think that he might be, like, intergalactic police. Almost like a scouter? Could be. Or, like, because when there's a UFO or Mothman sighting or anything kind of supernatural, and, like, then there's a Grinning Man sighting. Hmm. And it doesn't seem particularly harmful. They seem to be gathering more information, you know? So, kind of like, okay, what happened with this UFO? What came in, what was brought out, all of that. But whether you believe in the Grinning Man or not, Carrie, be careful, because if you see a very tall figure with a widespread grin, even though they seem harmless, something dangerous and mysterious is always looming around them. Dun-dun-dun. Look behind you. I mean, I don't buy it. I buy it being sleep paralysis more than. But what about the boys? I don't know. They're kids. So everything looks big. That could be it. I mean, it could be like he was really tall and. He's like 5'10". Yeah. Not seven eight. <laughs> you know. I mean, honestly, if you saw The Rock at night, you'd be like, he was really tall, really muscular. Don't know if he had hair or eyes. But he had a really white smile, and it was big. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Could be. What if The Rock is the grinning man? No. He didn't have wide set eyes. Trust me. I've looked at a lot of pictures. Damn. (laughs) Don't think you were looking at his eyes, honey. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to do one of your favorite but also most hated types of cases. Okay. It's a couple. Okay. And you just have to decide which one you believe. Oh, okay. Okay. Both guilty off with their heads. (laughs) Okay, and end of story. Bye. (laughs) Let me eat cake. (laughs) (laughs) So the couple in question is Alvin and Judith Neely. We'll start with Judith. Judith was born in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which is um, a suburb right outside of Nashville. Oh, yeah. She was born in 1964, and she had a very rough childhood. Her dad passed away when she was only nine, but he was an alcoholic. So when he was alive, it wasn't 
great for her, you know? Yeah. I mean, either way, her dad passed, and I'm not trying to diminish that. Definitely. But it was a hard life even when he was alive. Yeah. Trauma, living, trauma, dying. Exactly. After her dad died, her mom became very promiscuous. And she would often bring men home, and Judith would have to listen to them have sex because they lived in this little bitty house, and the only thing separating their bedrooms was a sheet. No. Uh-huh. Yep. Her mom ended up meeting this younger guy, and they were out drinking, driving around, and... Don't do that, kids. No. They were busted. I think they got in a wreck. I can't remember. I think they got in a wreck. I don't think they just got pulled over. Either way, they got busted. And her mom was charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Oh, fuck. He was, like, young. Oh, he was young. Sorry, I left that part out. Yeah, he was young. <laughs> yeah. You said, like, a younger guy. I no, was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. No, like, like 16. Yes. Way yes. to bury the fucking lead, Carrie. Sorry, sorry about that. Sorry. So she was just having a very hard time and was looking for a way out. When Judith was 15, she met Alvin. They actually met because Alvin was over at her house with one of his friends who was there to meet her mom. Oh, shit. Yeah. Alvin was 26 years old. Skirt. And she was 15. Uh Uh-huh. A 26-year-old has no business with a fucking 15-year-old. No. It's said that they instantly were attracted to each other, had this chemistry that, like, you couldn't deny. I mean, since the fact that he's 26 and she's 15. But okay. Here was the problem, though. Alvin was married. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of red flags. Mm-hmm. Well, Judith did not care. She, again, they had the chemistry. She wanted a way out from this house. And so... Alvin decided that he would get a divorce, and then he and Judith ended up going to Georgia and eloping in 1980. What's that saying? When you're wearing rose-colored glasses, all the red flags just look like flags? Mm-hmm. That's so true. Yeah. That's so true. Alvin's wife was not sad to see him go. Damn. Yeah. He was quite abusive to his first wife. No. Mm-hmm. Not good. Yep. And, you know... Alvin had always been a bit of, like, a bit of a petty theft, just like a criminal. You know, he would still, which I guess petty theft isn't stealing cars, but he stole cars. You know, he just, he lived a life of crime. And when he and Judith got together, that didn't change. The only thing that changed for him was she joined him. He stole her heart. Oh, my God. (laughs) They basically were transients all the way from... Texas to Georgia, just kind of back and forth. They would rob convenience stores, write bad checks at hotels. It was just their way of life. It didn't take long for them to get caught trying to cash stolen checks. When they got caught, they were in Rome, Georgia. So Judith, being fucking 15, had to go to Rome's Youth Development Center. Wow. Uh huh. And Alvin, because he had some outstanding warrants, he was sent straight to prison and sentenced for five years. Oh, damn. Yeah. So while Judith was at the Youth Development Center, or YDC, she had a really hard time with the staff. Like, she just, I really think that she 
couldn't handle authority. And so it just caused a lot of problems for her while she was in the YDC. She also alleged that she had been sexually abused in the YDC and all of her allegations were investigated and none of them were substantiated. Okay. While she was at the YDC though, she gave birth to twins and they were they were Alvins. Like it wasn't from oh, okay. the, it wasn't was, from the YDC. She was pregnant when she got there. I was about to say, uh, something doesn't check out then, but right? okay. yeah, yeah. They she was pregnant when she got there. Well, she and Alvin, I mean, again, love conquers all. They stayed in touch because they're married and, you know, the things. And she would, you know, write to him and be like, Oh my god, this place is the worst, blah, 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 blah. Really? He's in prison. Mm-hmm. Well, she didn't have to stay for very long. It was towards the end of 81, she was released and went and lived with Alvin's parents. It was only six more months before Alvin was actually released as well. Okay. So I think he served like two years of the five years. So they took the kids and left, went back to, you know, that transient lifestyle, still committing robberies, trying to cash stolen checks, those types of things. They did have two separate cars. And so in order to be able to keep in touch with each other in the cars, because hello, 1981, they got CB radios installed. Her CB name was Lady Sundown and his was Knight Rider. Lady Sundown sounds like a Karma Sutra sex position. It does. I mean, Knight Rider too, but that's like, come on, Alvin. You could have been better than that. Mm-hmm. Knight Rider sounds like he stole that from that show. Yeah. Thank you for knowing what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I didn't tell you was when Alvin was still in prison, Judith, I guess, had a hard time dealing with the fact that he was gone. She wanted to make him jealous. I don't know. But she ended up having sex with other men while he was in prison. And as an extra little fuck you to him, she made sure that she had sex with black men because he was a racist fuck. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. To all of that. Yeah. What? I mean, whatever. There's so many things that. Yeah. So many just things. So much. So between the alleged sexual abuse from the YDC and her having affairs, Alvin was like, we got to take this out on somebody. Oh. What? Yeah, he. It's like he couldn't deal with it. He was like, "Okay, we gotta like." Yeah, I don't. I, like, I don't even know how to describe the transition to this next life of crime that they lived. Wow. Well, it sounds like he blames her. Oh, absolutely. In September of 1982, one of the staff from the YDC, his name was Ken Dooley. He had gotten some weird, like anonymous calls that. Didn't really make sense. Kind of like a, I'm going to get you type calls. And it wasn't long after that, a car drove by and shot through his house four times. Holy crap. Mm -hmm. One of the staff from the YDC named Linda Adair, she also got some of those weird phone calls, like, you know, anonymous calls, but they, you know, you know who you are type thing. You know, you deserve this kind of thing. Next thing she knows, a Molotov cocktail has been thrown into her garage and caught her garage on fire. Holy, 
I was going to say holy smokes, but I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, don't. Nope. Mm-mm, nope. Luckily, they did a shitty job, like, making it. Yeah. And so it only messed up the garage. Like, it didn't take out her whole house. But either way, wow. her house was fucking firebombed. So we have a, sh- a house that's been shot up and a fucking firebombed house. All of YDC employees, like, within a day of one another. Right after that, the police were getting phone calls saying that those two houses had been attacked because of the sexual abuse that happens at the YDC and that they were part of it and blah, 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 blah. But the police had no idea who the victim was that they were talking about that had been sexually abused. They had no idea who the caller was. And again, you know, they're looking into this and these two, these two employees are clean like there's they're not they're they're good people you know later that month the police get another anonymous call and this time the caller is telling them about where to find a body in alabama off this remote canyon like the body basically had been pushed over the edge and hey here's where to find this person But the thing is, is that police, it would have taken forever to find that body had the anonymous caller not reported it. When they do find the body, though, it was right where the caller said it was. And they noticed some needles, like syringes and stuff, around the body. But the body had been shot three times. So the police were like, okay, like, you know, trying to figure this out. Like, what does this mean? You know. While they're working that case, it wasn't long after that body had been discovered that someone else comes to the police station and is like, look, this weird thing happened and, you know, it needs to be reported. She says that she was at this payphone when a lady in a car drove up and was like, hey, do you need a ride? You want to come, you want to, you want to come ride with me? And whoever was driving the car just kept pressuring this woman to to get in the car with her. And she was like, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Like, I'm fine. I don't need the ride. And that was all. But she was like, look, I feel like I, I need to report this. Then in October of 82, a guy flags down and gets some help and is like, help me. I've been shot. They take him to the hospital. And the people at the hospital are like, what happened? You know, what's your name? Yada, yada, yada. And he says that his name is John Hancock. Okay. And so... Can you put your John Hancock here? Wait a minute. Yeah. So everybody at the hospital was like, okay. So they call police because, you know, someone's been shot. You got a report. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm assuming you did in 82. You do now. But they did. And ended up, his name is, in fact, John Hancock. Oh, no. Yeah. And this is what his story was. And it, and it was kind of hard to believe, but... He said that he and his fiance Janice Chapman, had been out, you know, doing their thing. They were walking home when a car pulled up that had a woman driving and was like, hey, do y'all need a ride? And John Hancock is like, no, we're good. We're like three blocks away from the house. We're good. Well, Janice really wanted to, to take the ride. You know, she was excited. She was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And so John agreed, you know. Janice was a little more of a trusting soul. She had a developmental delay, so she just wasn't always aware of the dangers of the, you know, just because of her delay. 
So they get in the car, and the lady driving is like, hey, you know, let's let's go ride around for a little bit. And they're like, okay. And she gets on her CB radio, and she's like, hey, Knight Rider, it's Lady Sundown. You want to come meet up over here? So John and Janice, like I said, are in the car, which, hello, you know, spoiler alert, I just said Lady Sundown. So we know that it's Judith and that she's calling Alvin. And so they agree to meet kind of at the outskirts of town. And when they get there, John Hancock's like, oh, well, look, this guy's got two young kids in the car with him. Because remember, they had twins. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, he's a little more at ease because, I mean, there's kids here. Decoys. So they suggested that John get in the car with Alvin and Janice stay in the car with Judith. Well, they had stopped like by some woods because one of them said they had to use the bathroom. And John thought he heard one of them say, if you're going to do it, do it now. So he's like, what the hell? What are they talking about? You know? Well, he says that the woman who obviously Judith leads him over to the woods Makes him walk down a little ways and shoots him in the back. Oh, my gosh. And so he pretends to be dead, thinking that hopefully she'll just leave him there. Thinking, you know, I'm clearly repeating myself, but keep thinking that he's dead. And then he can try to get away once they leave. Well, it worked. She thought he was dead and they left with Janice. So that's when he goes to the hospital, all the things, and the, and they're like, oh, shit, okay, so where the fuck is Janice? Right. Another weird thing happened. When John Hancock was at the police station telling them his story, you know, helping with the sketches, all the things, because he remembered, they had, like, I think she was a social worker or someone from the YDC listening to those phone those anonymous phone calls to the police about those attacks on those, that staff's house. And John happens to hear it, which is like kind of a lucky coincidence accident, but also, yeah. um, I feel like that's really bad policing that just happened to work out in their favor. Yeah. But he hears it and he's like, that's her. That is who picked us up and was talking on the CB radio. That is Lady Sundown. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly what he said, but he's like, that's her. <laughs> and so they've got like a sketch and stuff now. And they're they're putting the pieces together to realize that this is all tied together. And then they go, well, that body we got called about and the person who called about the attacks on the staff. Well, that's the same person. Well, now we know that's the same person that attacked John Hancock. So where's Janice? And... What the fuck with that body? Alvin and Judith were back on the run. Not really on the run, because they feel like at this point they've gotten away with things, right? Mm -hmm. But they head back to Murfreesboro because they wanted to use some of their forgery skills to get some, some money from some money orders. Well, somebody recognized them from a flyer being mm. like, uh, you know, all the things. Wanted. Yes. And so they were both arrested. As soon as they were arrested, it was very kind of he said, she said, and their stories just didn't really line up. But Alvin lawyered up quick. And even though he had an attorney, he's talking. And so Judith finds out 
Alvin's talking and she's like, oh, hell no. You're not going to put all this on me. So she starts talking. Basically, this is what we get from it. Again, it was very conflicting and they both minimized their participation in it and put blame on the other and all the things that we know that people do when they're being interrogated and confessing. Okay. But the first body that had been found was Lisa Ann Milliken. She had been abducted by Alvin and Judith from a mall in Rome, Georgia. They took her across state lines back to Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Their story switched. Alvin says that Judith was actually bisexual and she's the one that wanted to kidnap her because she wanted to have sex with her. Alvin also said that Judith felt so bad about cheating on him while he was in prison and all of that, that she wanted to give him a virgin to make up for it because she couldn't give him her virginity. Okay. Mm-hmm. Regardless of who wanted to do what with what, they kidnapped this 13-year-old child, took her to Tennessee, took her to a hotel, tied her up to the hotel bed, and both raped her in front of their children. What? Yep. Then... What hotel has a headboard that you can tie stuff to? I don't know. This was the 80s. I don't know. It probably had a coin-operated vibrating thing, too. Do you know the name of this hotel? (laughs) (laughs) Been meaning to get up to Nashville. (laughs) The next thing that we know happened is Judith took poor Lisa to, again, said remote canyon in Alabama. Oh, my gosh. She told poor little Lisa that she was going to inject her with a medicine that was going to make her go to sleep. And that when she was asleep, that she was going to leave and she would be okay. Well, the medicine that she had was Drano. Whoa. So Judith is over and over and over, like six times, sticking poor Lisa with this needle to try to kill her with the Drano. Lisa kept telling her, that she didn't feel good, she was really sick, and Judith let this go on for half an hour, her basically writhing in pain because it didn't kill her. Wow. So Judith is like, she's got to die, and this isn't working, so she got her gun and shot her three times. Well, when Judith shot her, Lisa fell forward towards Judith instead of back off the canyon. So Judith had to push her over the canyon. So it was like, I don't know, just it was like all these fucking errors, you know? Yeah. The thing that we do know about Janice Chapman's murder is that basically the same thing. She was taken to a cheap motel, raped over and over again, tortured, and eventually they shot her and dumped her body in this wooded area. During the confessions, Judith was very matter-of-fact about everything. No emotion when she's describing it. But when it came time for the trials, she flipped the script a little bit. Again, Alvin portrayed Judith as kind of the ringleader, the one who wanted to find these girls. She was the one that went out and actually hunted for the girls and brought them back to her. And he's like, this is all her. I participated, but this is all her. He even went so far as to say that Judith was so in control and so domineering over him 
that she forced him to ejaculate into a cup and then put the sperm on Lisa to make sure like he's guilty, like he looks guilty. And it's like, um, yeah, that probably didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Judah's defense centered around her claims of physical abuse by Alvin. She said that she was so terrified of him that she went along with everything because he beat her and all the things. At her trial, they even had Alvin's first wife testify about her her physical abuse. But here's the thing. This fucking DA, this shit would never fly now, and I want to punch him in his throat for saying this. But when Alvin's first wife was on the stand, and he said basically the same thing about Judith, he was like, mm, I mean, were they really beaten because... The first wife, she had no broken bones. And then this fucking DA also said that Judith, she only had a broken finger. I mean, was she really abused? Mm, Shut the fuck up. Yes. First of all, fuck you. And second, people who are frequent abusers like that fucking hit where it can be covered up. So, yeah, just because she hasn't had a broken bone does not mean that she wasn't abused. Maybe she has a lot of fucking calcium. Yeah, well, well. also, a lot of people who are abused don't go to the doctor mm-hmm. or the hospital or anything. Exactly. When they are really hurt. Yep. Like, because they could be like, oh, it's just another broken rib or it's just, a, you know, uh-huh. you don't fucking know. A lot of people nurse themselves because they're scared, they're ashamed, all of those things. And to... And then to publicly shame them? Exactly. A fucking victim. Fuck you. Yes. So... Judge yourself, motherfucker. Well, to make a long trial and all of that crap short, in order to avoid the death penalty, Alvin pled guilty to murder and aggravated assault in Georgia for Janice Chapman's murder. But he wasn't tried for Lisa... Milliken's murder because he's already serving a life sentence, you know, and, and so, you know, that happens a lot. Well, Judith's trial lasted six weeks. Whoa. Mm-hmm. She was convicted for the murder of Lisa Milliken. And so, okay, back in 83, when this trial was, a judge in Alabama could overrule, basically, the jury's recommendation for death penalty or not. The jury recommended life in prison, but the judge was like, mm-mm, she's getting the death sentence. And she was sentenced to death, and she was 18 years old. She was the youngest woman in Alabama's history to be given the death penalty. Wow. Yep. But old Alvin over there doesn't have the death penalty. Nope, nope. And so she, because because she got the death penalty in that case, she was like, well, I'm not fucking going, I'm going to plead guilty to Janice's murder because I'm not getting two fucking death sentences. Yeah. Alvin was in prison until he died in 2005. Like I said, Judith was the youngest woman ever since to death. Well, in the United States, I think I said Alabama a second ago, but really it was the States. She had a few appeals and eventually they commuted her death sentence to life in prison. And like every five years now, she comes up for parole. She's found God since she's been in there and as of late, when she comes up for parole, she's like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to put the families through that. I know. She found God. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's them. 
old Judith and Alvin. And it's like, again, part of me wants to be like, golly, you know, she just had such a hard life. She's been, been abused her whole fucking life. Was she really a victim herself with him? But no. In her case, I truly think that she was just as much of a perpetrator as he. Yeah, I agree. Do I think that there are women who do this because they're victims and they're scared? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Absolutely. Do I think that she is? Mm -mm. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You know, they had conflicting statements on whether or not Alvin was present when she killed the girls. Specifically, Lisa. Whether he was there when she, you know, killed her on the, the cliff, the canyon or not. Yeah. So, if he wasn't there, she, you know, she did that on her own. But one could argue that she did that because she knew that when she went home, if she hadn't done it, you know. Yeah. So, it's it's hard. But I truly believe that they both are sexual sadists who, yeah. who willingly both committed these crimes. Yeah. I mean, he preyed upon her when she was young and, mm-hmm. and you know, living her life that was full of trauma mm-hmm. and everything. But she also used him as a way to get out of mm-hmm. that life, too. And think knowing about- that he was married, knowing mm-hmm. that he was all of the things mm-hmm. beforehand, too. But you do what you know. Yeah, oh, you know yeah, what I mean? yeah. And just think that all of this happened in like a three-year span. Wow. You know, she was 18. That's crazy. Again, there's a whole lot of stuff I'm leaving out about, especially with the the trials and stuff and their confessions and all that. But that's the gist of it. I just feel so sorry for the victims and their families. But they there's also a lot of speculation. Were these two their only victims? Mm. And will we ever know? Because the only reason why those two victims were found was because they told them where they were. Yeah. Because they did have that little road trip that they would take from mm-hmm. Texas. Mm-hmm. To Georgia and mm-hmm. to Tennessee. And, you know, they're they're committing the murders in these obscure places, a canyon, in these woods where they're dumping the body. You know, and again, mm-hmm. they told them exactly where they could find both of those bodies. So had they not done that, would they have ever been found? No. And at this point, are they really going to start talking about somebody else? Probably not. No. And, well, I mean, he did, so. Wow. Mm-hmm. When I was picking this story, I was like, ooh, this one's going to get Donna hot. Because you get, I mean, who doesn't? But you get so mad when it's a female luring other females in. Yes, because it's just like, who girl the fuck code. You, well, and who the fuck can you trust? I mean, yes. it's a couple with fucking twin toddlers in the back seat. Like, if you can't trust them, who the fuck can you trust? Right. Also, it's like, what are the odds that those people, like, their paths mm-hmm. met, you know, and just. I feel like it's like you put out like a beacon, you know. Yeah. It's like how people with substance abuse problems find each other. And it's like to get drugs and that kind of thing. And it's like, it's the same thing. It's like you recognize yourself in them, maybe. And so maybe. you're able to connect in that way and especially with them because it was so fast and so intense Mm -hmm. they just immediately had this chemistry and maybe that's because they're both sexual sadists yeah and the thing is we'll never know because neither one of them were going to tell the truth they're going to tell their version of the truth that makes them look the best definitely of course we'll never know who was the 
alpha, for lack of a better word. Yeah. I mean, look, they fucking named themselves Boney and Clyde. Look, if I had two dogs, that would be their names. Oh, my God. Okay, all in all, don't trust anyone. If they're smiling and it's like a big cheesy smile, don't trust them. They had something. A probe. Okay, actually, I would go towards them then. (laughs) I want to smile that big. (laughs) And also, just like you said, they look like a family. Mm -hmm. And unassuming, but don't trust them. Don't trust anyone because if they're murderers, if they want, if they have the intent to hurt you, they're going to hurt you no matter what. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter. Well, and that's true because that's what happened to poor Lisa. You know, Lisa believed like, okay, she's going to inject me and I'm going to go to sleep and then she's going to go away. No, she's going to kill you. That was fucking Drano. Yeah. Gosh. I know. So don't trust anyone out there. Except us. Yeah, except us. You can trust us. Sometimes. Unless we've had too much cheesecake. Or not enough sleep. Very true. Or a whole bottle of wine. But regardless, remember. Creep it real and and don't don't get get scared. scared.